Amen. Okay. Well, unlike last week, uh, the point of the passage this week could not be any more clear. Luke tells us straight away, verse 1, he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. I love it when the teacher gives you the answers. And those are our twin goals this morning. Constant prayer and persevering prayer, which really are the same thing. Now, it's an awkward thing, prayer is, or it can be, at least at first. As soon as the words begin to flow, so too do the questions and the apprehensiveness. What am I supposed to say? How am I supposed to say it? Maybe a feeling of embarrassment comes over you, or even, if you haven't prayed for a while or whatever it might be, a feeling of guilt. Distractions flood your mind, doubt weighs down your heart, and on and on it goes. And thus, one thing common to all who pray is discouragement. And by that, I mean a fitfulness that stops and starts, that tries but does not persevere, like a project that one has been meaning to get to but has never quite got around to it. So the thing needed in prayer is constancy, consistency, and that is what the Lord teaches us in this passage. And here we're provided with the inner disposition necessary for such constant prayer, namely, a dogged faith a persevering faith. Now, the Lord addresses the motivation rather than the form, but we've already been taught the form, the Lord's Prayer. For those who stammer in prayer and know not what to say, I suggest that you start there. That is the reason it was given to us after all. Thankfully, you don't have to make it up. You don't have to figure it out on your own. Instead, Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven. So say his words or learn to say his words before your own. And in time, his words will become your own. You'll know what to pray, how to pray. So if the form is your trouble, the what and the how, learn to pray the Lord's Prayer. However, if the motivation is your trouble. Discouragement and doubt, well, hear our passage this morning. Our Lord's encouragement to pray always and not lose heart comes, as it does in many places in his teaching, in the form of a parable. He tells a story, in other words, designed to teach us about our relationship to God and how to approach it. And it begins, the parable does, with a judge in a certain city. And the judge did not fear God and did not respect man. A little later on, he is called the unrighteous judge. Immediately, we get a, the sense of the kind of person he is. He is not motivated by justice and equity, as a judge ought to be. In fact, such concerns seem to be entirely beneath him. Instead, sheer personal interest compels him. 
He cares less to protect the weak and the vulnerable and more to fatten himself on the bribes of the rich. Now, in that city, Jesus tells us, there was a widow. Now, in ancient societies, widows were among the most vulnerable people. Wives were entirely dependent upon their husbands. And this widow, bereaved of her husband's support, had no one to care for her, especially if she had no sons. And moreover, if her husband had left her money or property, it was easily taken and exploited by others for their own gain. Now, something, seems, something like that, rather, seems to be the case here. Because the parable goes, she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. One scholar points out that because she came to a single judge and not the tribunal, a number of judges, it must have been a money matter which could be handled by a lone public official. So it's likely that a debt or a pledge or a portion of the inheritance was being withheld from her. And because she was a woman, and because she had no bribe to offer the unrighteous judge, her only weapon was persistence. She kept coming to him, Jesus says. Now, a similar story comes down to us from antiquity, this time from Mesopotamia. And it goes, The front of the hall was crowded with people, each demanding that his case should be heard first. The wise ones whispered to the secretaries and slipped over bribes and had the biz- their business quickly dispatched. In the meanwhile, a poor woman broke the orderly proceedings with loud cries for justice. She was sternly bidden to be quiet and reproachfully told that she, had con- she came every day. And so I will do, she loudly ex- exclaimed, until the courts hear my case. The case was decided and her patience rewarded. Now we ought to understand something similar at play here. The widow hassling and pestering the unrighteous judge to give her due justice. So the story continues, verses 4 and 5. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. So the judge's indifference to justice is no match for the widow's persistence. For a time, he was unwilling. But he could only take so much. Eventually, he succumbed and he did the right thing for the wrong reason. And of course, who can blame him? We get a sense of the widow's intensity in the phrase, she will wear me out. Literally translated from the Greek, it means to strike under the eye or to give a black eye. Now, of course, it ought to be understood figuratively, but the picture is clear. She is ready to go 12 rounds. And he throws in the towel somewhere around the third. She wears him down. So the point is clear. 
She appealed for justice always, did not lose heart, and was rewarded at length. And though the judge, he cared not about justice, he granted her justice because she prevailed upon him in stubbornness and tenacity, raining down devastating blows with her constant complaints. It was her only weapon, persistence, but it was a mighty one. So the parable is clear, and from it, the, Lord's turn, the Lord now turns to his disciples to draw out its inner meaning. The passage reads in verses 6 and 8, Now the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God is here compared to the unrighteous judge. And that, says, that causes some to worry, understandably, but it shouldn't. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. The conclusion is not that God is like the unrighteous judge, and that we have to prevail over his indifference to have our prayers answered, but just the opposite. He is unlike the unrighteous judge, willing and well disposed toward us and toward our cause. So, if the widow prevailed upon the earthly unrighteous judge, how much more ought the heavenly, righteous judge to hear our prayers. Now, in contrast to the unrighteous judge, two things about our God come into view, namely his goodness or his willingness and his justice. Jesus draws his conclusion, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? It's a rhetorical question. He will, because he is willing. Our prayers are not lodged with a closed fist, penny-pinching God, but instead to an infinite well of generosity and kindness. The one who creates not to take, not to have, but to give. The one whom we call Father. The gospel or rather, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 11 through 13. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Will he not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion, will he? If then, being evil, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Again, again, it's reasoned here from the lesser to the greater, from earthly fathers to the heavenly one. If human beings, as bad and as morally corrupt as they can be, nevertheless still do good, how much more, Jesus reasons, will the one who is goodness itself Give good gifts to those 
who ask him. And not merely good gifts, but himself in the Holy Spirit. God does not have goodness the way our earthly parents have goodness. As an attribute that he possesses that can wax and wane in its intensity. Rather, God is goodness. It's not a thing that exists outside and above him, a moral quality that he conforms himself to. Instead, God simply is goodness. It is his very being. Anything that God has, God is. James chapter 1 verse 17, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, every earthly good is a sign that points to and comes from the one transcendent source of goodness, the unchanging Father. So if our parents, and we as parents, know how to give good things to our children, morally compromised as we are, how much more our eternal Father? All things are from Him, and through Him, and to Him. Ask, and you shall receive. Knock, and it will be open. Seek, and you will find. And next to God's goodness, Jesus sets His justice and righteousness. God is willing, we are taught. Willing to hear us. Willing to answer our prayers. But specifically, willing to bring about justice, Jesus says. And like goodness, justice is not a quality that God has, but who He is. What is just and right does not originate from some source outside of God a source that he then conforms to and upholds. He is the source, the very content and sum of what is just and right in the world. In that sense, then, he is the very contrast to the unrighteous judge who could care less about the plight and injustice faced by the widow. Instead, the scripture teaches us, Psalm 146, how blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the stranger. He supports the fatherless and the widow. He thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. All justice that is wrought upon the earth, every wicked doer silenced, and every oppressed person vindicated, comes from God, who reigns forever. And God proves His righteousness to all the earth in the Exodus. He sighs decisively and forcefully, with the oppressed against their oppressor, to deliver the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. Israel goes free, and God's justice toward them becomes their standard of justice toward others. He commands them, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, 
You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. God's justice issues in the world in a very concrete form, namely the protection and defense of the vulnerable, orphans, the stranger, and the widow. He is not indifferent to their cries, but rather is their protector and their strong tower, who sides not against them, but with them. And so, this God of justice, who is justice, who is righteousness, the passage seems to say, will he not act on behalf of his people? Will he allow them to languish under the boot of oppressive rulers? Will he be content to watch his elect swept away in injustice? Or will he not act? Will he not do something? I tell you, Jesus says, he will bring about justice for them quickly. So if God is likened to the unrighteous judge, then we are likened to the persistent widow. Her actions become the model for our prayer, that we are to pray always and not lose heart. Now that first order, that we are to pray always, is a matter of faith. That is, after all, what the Lord's lesser to greater reasoning is designed to evoke. If the judge, who hated to be asked, heard the widow's request, how must God here, who exhorts us and encourages us to ask? Faith comes by hearing, the scripture says, and hearing by the word of Christ. So hearing the truth about our God, infinitely good, measurelessly just, our hearts ought to respond in faith. Proclaimed is not mere conjecture about God, but revelation from above. It confirms its truth to our inmost being and creates in us a conviction about who God is. This is who our God is, and our hearts rise to believe it. And that freshly minted faith in our hearts issues in prayer as its natural and fitting response. If the poor widow was heard, how much more us? We are compelled to pray by believing these words. Faith is the fountain and spring of prayer. As natural it is for our hearts to beat, so it is for faith to pray. In his sermon on this passage, Augustine says, If faith fails, prayer perishes. For who prays for what he does not believe? So then, that we may pray, let us believe. Now we can pinpoint obstacles that prevent our continued prayer, busyness and a distracted mind, and so on. But at root, it stems from a lack of faith, or else a severe discouragement, because we have ceased to believe that God hears, or rather, that we have ceased to exercise our faith that God hears. Our prayers have grown quiet. And whatever obstacles remain, they are secondary to that initial lack of faith or doubt. 
So then, Augustine says, that we may pray, let us believe. That we may pray, let us believe. And yet, it's not enough that our faith starts well. It must finish well. On the one hand, the Lord encourages our faith that we may begin to pray. And on the other hand, he spurs it along that we may continue to pray. When the Son of Man comes... Jesus asks, will he find faith on the earth? His very, inqu- his very question rather implies a delay, that prior to his return, our prayers, that is, our faith, will be tested. He expects to return and find us fervent in prayer. And that matter of testing is important, because any faith worth having, is a faith worth being tested by trials and delays and discouragements. Again, the Lord wants a faith that not merely begins well, but ends well. On this passage, John Calvin says, We know that perseverance in prayer is a rare and difficult attainment. And it is a manifestation of our unbelief that when our first prayers are not successful, we immediately throw away not only hope, but all the ardor of prayer. In other words, perseverance is necessary. It's the fruit of genuine conversion. Remember the seed that landed on the rocky soil. It sprang up immediately with joy, but withered away in the sun because it had no root. Whereas, The seed that landed on the good soil, because it put its root deep into the ground, it endured the scorching heat and in time bore fruit. So we are here challenged to progress beyond an infantile faith that starts and stops, that trusts and then doubts, to a mature faith only dependent upon the good word that weathers discouragement and doubt. And that means persevering in prayer, both generally and specifically. Generally in a habit of prayer, maintaining faith not only in season, carried along by good feelings, but out of season, when all is dry and cold. And specifically, in a habit of praying for one thing and not becoming discouraged. God, this passage seems to indicate, intends to give his yes, but that we are prone to abandon ship at the first moment of adversity and so never receive it. It's not a no, it's just a delay, but we abandon prayer before we can receive. So put simply, what the passage is telling us is that faith overcomes. It absorbs blows, discouragement, doubt, an apparent locked and bolted door, yet faith carries on. It does not lose heart because it's not rooted in outward signs, but in the perfect, unchanging goodness of God. Take, therefore, the apparent locked and bolted door, not as a definitive no to your prayers. Now that time comes. Think the apostles' words in Second Corinthians chapter 12. It comes, but instead, take it as an invitation to mature in faith, past inconsistency into genuine perseverance. 
wherein lies the reward. Again, a faith worth having is a faith worth being tested. It seems that Jesus does not want us so easily discouraged, nor to become so quickly faint-hearted when things don't go our way. Remember the widow. She wore down the unrighteous judge with her constant requests, and she herself would not be worn out. Again, Calvin, the leading truth conveyed is that God does not at all once grant assistance to his people because he chooses, as it were, to be wearied out by our by prayers. He chooses, as it were, to be wearied out, wearied out by prayers. And that seems entirely right. Because in the end, the goal is not to receive things from the hand of God, no matter how good, but to commune with God and to be transformed into the image of Christ. And Perseverance, continual perseverance, plays an indispensable role. It is in perseverance that our faith is made stronger, that our conviction in the kindness and goodness and mercy of God grows deeper. We not only receive what we ask, but we receive God himself, who is more desirable than what we ask for. And so all that said... There is more to be said. And I want to consider another woman as the model of persevering prayer. And that is the Syrophoenician woman. You may be familiar with the story, but the woman, or the rather the scriptures record her crying out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But Jesus, in response to her, is as silent as a stone. He did not answer her a word, the passage says. Now, it's a very hard, seemingly cruel response. Repudiation from Jesus and her faith severely tested. And what does the poor woman do? She turns her heart away from the unfriendly treatment, now from the disciples too who wish to send her away, and she doubles down on her faith. Whatever the reason for Jesus' current brusqueness, she is not discouraged, but continues to believe the report that she had heard about him, his kindness and mercy. She despises all outward signs. She tramples upon discouragement, even from the Lord, and continues on valiantly. What then? Jesus finally answers her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he says. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. The repudiation this time is even more severe. Yes, all those things are true, he seems to say, but they are not true for you. I came only for the children of Israel. And you are a dog. Are those words not a thunderbolt that dashes her faith into a thousand pieces? That the word she had come to trust upon is not for her, but for others only. But again, what does the woman do? She does not give up. She clings to her faith, though it be torn from her heart by force. 
She replies, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And Jesus responds, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. So she prevails. Now listen to what Martin Luther has to say on the passage. She does not despair, but agrees with his judgment and concedes. She is a dog, and desires also no more than a dog is entitled to, namely that she may eat the crumbs that fall from the table of the Lord. Is that not a masterly stroke as a reply? She catches Christ with his own words. He compares her to a dog, she concedes it, and asks nothing more than that that he let her be a dog, as he himself judged her to be. Where will Christ now take refuge? He is caught. Truly, people let the dogs have their crumbs under the table. It is entitled to that. Therefore, Christ now completely opens his heart to her and yields to her will, so that she is now no dog, but even a child of Israel. The woman's encounter is recorded for our instruction and encouragement as an example of perseverance. She refuses to take no for an answer, not in presumption, nor in pride, but in perfect faith. She even turns an apparent and definitive no, at which all of us would have packed up shop and left, and she turns it into a yes. She catches Christ with his own words, as Luther says. She finds even the smallest sliver of an opening and pushes at the door until finally it gives way. Such is the faith that we are called to. Not to give up. Not to take no for an answer so easily. Not to despair at the first signs of adversity, but to carry on. And to carry on when it seems there is no reason to carry on. Because God in His providence seeks to draw that faith out of us. Seeks to build it into our hearts. The kind of faith that knows how deeply God conceals his kindness from before our eyes. That knows that we can't gauge God according to our feelings and according to our thinking, but strictly according to his word. And so we're taught here to turn away from appearances, to grasp upon the deep spiritual yes under the apparent outward no. And that means persevering, not presuming that silence or delay is no, but that it's an invitation to put down deeper roots into the divine goodness. So what then? Quite simply, pray always and do not lose heart. So now as we come to prepare for Holy Communion together, as we close, let us remember what these elements that we're about to partake teach. The bread and the cup are the perceptible signs of the imperceptible love of God. God demonstrates his love toward us, the scripture says, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our confidence is not rooted in what or what does not happen to us, whether things go our way or not, whether we are like the Syrophoenician woman or the poor widow. But our confidence 
is in the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ and that alone. That only, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is the demonstration that we stake our lives on. If God is for us, who is against us? The apostle asks. Then he adds, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God has already demonstrated the infinite depths of his willingness in the crucifixion of his son. Can we not trust him for smaller things? Indeed, we can and we do. We are taught to pray always and not lose heart. So as the music plays, take time to remember what we celebrate now. God is for you. Nourish your faith on the reality of the cross. This is my body. This is my blood given for you. So thank him now and I will lead us in communion in just a moment.